This episode is brought to you by the Slash and Cast Podcast Network. Learn more at slashandcast.net. If you had one question about the shining itself, ask me the butt flaps that I would ask. <laughs> <laughs> yes, probably with the butt flap. Hello and welcome to the Conjecturing Horrors Podcast. With me is Laura. Hello. And Greg. Hey guys. And I'm your host, Rob. How's everybody doing tonight? How's how's the gold room going? Oh, it's fabulous. It's fabulous great tonight. Yeah. It's great. It's going good. It's all <laughs> it's it's nice and shiny. We got a we got a guest uh, on tonight, so maybe it's a little brighter tonight. You know, maybe it's a little uh you know, a little more, I don't know, fucking crazy. Maybe our brains are tingling a little bit, you know? Uh <laughs> We'll, we'll see, you know, how that goes when we get into the interview a bit. Uh, this week, we're doing our very first Pick Your Poison episode, uh, which is super exciting. We have our first guest on, which is even more exciting. Uh, so we're going to be interviewing uh, Garab Jane uh, about his book, The Mirroring, a secret film by Stanley Kubrick. Uh, so let's see what we're drinking tonight. Let me uh, get the drop going here. What's in the cups? <laughs> All right, so uh, Laura, what are we drinking tonight? We're drinking bourbon rocks, obviously, or Jack Daniels. That's okay too. Okay, nice, nice. I like it. Especially yeah, we're doing the Shining book ish uh, review, more or less, with a with our guest tonight. So it's totally fitting. I like it. I think uh, Lloyd at the bar was like, "Oh, I pour, I poured this a thousand times, guys. Like I, I, I have this on stock, you know." He yeah, he's pouring out. me doubles right now. So oh, it's doubles tonight. Oh, wow. oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny that's funny yeah uh do you guys are we wearing anything tonight what do you what do you got going on greg you look all nice and spiffy yeah <laughs> i look kind of dapper don't i i yeah. this is uh jack torrance's little get up when he he does the interview for the overlook hotel in the shining so he's got his nice little blazer here the, the colors are a little bit off but you know still got the solid tie a little bit of a plaid checkered uh button-up shirt you know to show that you know he's a he's a working man, but at the same time he can look dapper when he needs to. So nice. that's me. You know what's funny though is what? that that is totally the outfit that Jack Torrance wears in the interview scene, and you do look very dapper. But I love how Garav in his book when he's describing his outfit in the book, he's saying how. He looks kind of like lower class. He doesn't look as spiffy as the Overlook <laughs> employees do. Just I mean, crack it up on man, that. this is my church. This is the outfit that you can take to church. So I don't know about lower class. This is this is my high class outfit. That's like oh, Easter church go. shit. Yeah. yeah. Oh, there you go. There you go. Interesting. What about you, Laura? Do you got anything? You wear anything tonight? I'm just wearing my Overlook hotel tee. You know. Nice, nice. Yeah, for me, I mean, my shirt goes with one of our big announcements tonight. I'm wearing one of our own Conjecture shirts. I'm wearing the headphone uh, Jack shirt. I'll work and no play, make Jack a dole blow with our headphone. Uh, goes hand in hand with our big announcement. Our merch store is officially open now. We finally got it open. We got a ton of designs on there. Laura keeps sneaking extra ones in when I'm not looking, uh, <laughs> but it's okay, <laughs> you know? <laughs> <laughs> she's all sneaky about it too i don't know what's going up with that <laughs> but uh yeah the merch store is officially open how do you guys feel having the merch store like actually open now phenomenal that that 
the store is great. I, I had no hand in any of the artwork <laughs> whatsoever. You guys are geniuses in coming up with those designs. Um, it's great. You know, the, the, the cool thing that I just noticed about it the other day is that there's so many applications. It's not just T-shirts. There's, yeah. you know, mugs, there's stationery, there's masks, there's baby one baby onesies. I don't know if you want to have a 237 <laughs> on a baby onesie, but if you're so inclined, um, if you're a big shiny Oh, my band, God. I Funny go story behind that. So I helped set up the store and I didn't realize that you could pick and choose what items or what design gets applied to which items. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they kind of group merch in all together. So that's all tees, hoodies, including kids shirts and onesies. So I had all the kids stuff at one point. You could get any of our designs, even the super inappropriate ones on a kid's onesie. And then I, I realized it and I was like, if they think we're trying to sell a onesie with a cute little doggy on it, but then you read closer and it says, fuck movie tropes. I was like, oh shit, I got to fix this. Or like, you know. Buy me a beer, Bob. Buy me a beer, Bob. Or what about, uh, you know, BYOB, like bring your own demon to the house party. Like, oh shit. So that was a really funny story. Because, uh, we we yeah. might get some uh, some emails about, please put that in a onesie. Please, I want that in a onesie. So yeah, if anybody wants to email us in, let us know what they want on that onesie. Uh, <laughs> Conjecturingpot at Gmail. Laura I'll have it. Laura I'll can add it. it. For you. Yeah, yeah. That's not a problem. That's not a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if anybody wants to see them, you can go to tpublic.com slash user slash conjecturingpod. And, and we'll also put the link in the show notes um so that'll be easy just click you can go from there um yeah but i'm, I'm super excited about it. it's pretty cool we also have um if you want to visit our website podpage.com slash conjecturing pod there's also a link there might be a little bit easier way to get to the merch store uh so i'm super excited like greg said it's just crazy that all the different types of things not just shirts i mean notebooks mugs um like throw pillows like things like that i'm just like whoa like in my mind i'm like that that sounds crazy, but then you look at it and you're like, that fucking does look dope. Like two, three, seven throw pillow on your couch. That'd be Ooh, fucking so yeah. fucking cool. So yeah, everybody check it out. Check out the merch, you know, buy whatever you want. It's pretty cool. If you want something added that's not there, let us know. We can make it into a onesie or something like that, you know. Um <laughs> <laughs> But uh, that's so cool though. But um, so do you guys have any follow-up now from previous show? Uh anything like that? Last week we did La Llorona. Last week, I don't know if I'm finally nailed saying that word, but uh, I think maybe a little La bit better. Llorona. Oh, there you go. Good job, Laura. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get close to the mic, Greg. Why are you making that face? There's the, the something about, I mean, look, I'm no person. I can't speak Spanish, but this, when you say it, it just sounds funny. La Llorona. I don't know how. There's some way you do it. La Llorona. <laughs> Okay, but do you guys have anything from the episode? Not how to pronounce the damn thing. <laughs> no. You know, nothing, nothing more. You guys didn't have Wait, any faucets did they, turned on. Did they? Did they win the the award? I don't think so. I don't. Th I don't think they won the uh, Golden Globe. I don't think they won the Golden Globe. Oh, uh, okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, Armor. sorry, sorry for them. Sorry, guys. You know, maybe a better look at the Oscars. We'll see. You know. <laughs> Um, yeah, so let's get into a little bit of the opening of the actual episode this week. Like I said, we're doing, uh, the mirroring. We're doing a, a book, a guest on this is my choice for pick your poison. Um, so I just chose this because it was just so interesting reading, you know, what this book was about online. You know, Grav hit us up on Twitter, said like, Hey, if I ever could come on and talk about my book, it'd be great. We checked it out. Sounded awesome. You know, our new theme is the shining now. The Shining was our mm -hmm. longest episode we did. It was two and a half hours. Like mm -hmm. it just felt, 
it felt just, you know, whatever you want to call it, cosmic, kismic, whatever you want to say, that like everything just lined up perfectly to be our very first uh, pick your poison. And I'm like, let's just do it. Um, so that's why I did it. Uh, so before we get to our actual more in the movie here, let's do really fast or horror segment of the week. This week I have for you guys. All right, this week I have a question for you guys. So speaking of the mirroring, speaking of, you know, digging super deep into a movie um, and writing a book about it, you know, and this and that, I wanted to ask you guys, you know, what horror or horrorish movie do you think you could write a full book about? You know, and not a pop-up book like The Babadook or anything like that, but like a full, oh, legit sure. book. Yeah, no, come on, Greg, no cop-outs, Greg. Um, <laughs> so uh, what, do, what do you think, Laura? Did you have an idea of what movie or what horrorish movie you could uh, like write a full book about? Well, up until recently, I would have answered with The Shining. I mm. feel, we like we talked about this movie for two and a half hours and we weren't even done. We cut it short because we were like, <laughs> oh, shit, this episode's two and a half hours long. We got to stop talking. So that's out. I can't answer with that. You guys, I think it's no surprise here. I've been debating between Halloween and Scream. Mm. And, uh, you know, up until maybe a few hours ago, I kept thinking it's probably Halloween. I feel like there's a lot of themes I can unpack there. It's not. It's Scream. And I think you guys probably could have guessed that by that episode we had, because I know a shit ton about this movie. <laughs> and I know a lot about the 90s. Like, I, I was born in the 80s, but like, I'm a 90s kid. You know, I, I fucking love the 90s. I love the music. I love everything about it. So yeah, I think I could really dive into Scream and yeah. probably make it into something it's not even intended to be. But I think I could do it. You think it would be like you would have a lot of '90s tribute stuff equally, yeah, like in equal yep. measure as like uh, as you're discussing the movie. That would be awesome. Exactly, because writing it in 2021, I would talk about what this meant for the '90s and how you'd compare that to today and what differences were from '90s to today. Yeah, I I, I think I could do it. Nice. Yeah, like like what's the meaning behind the nipple scene and what gel do they use? Well, and all that stuff. Perfect. Exactly. I would talk about how they, you know, did that on many TV shows at the time. It, mm -hmm. it was like a common thing and how no one would do that today. That is just <laughs> no. crazy. Wow. Okay. All right. I'd buy that book, you know, I'd buy yeah. that book. That'd, that'd be pretty cool. Laura. Well, you better. Yeah. Oh, okay. Let's try better. Okay. That's true. <laughs> you better buy it. This is a hypothetical book. Offended. <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> how, how dare you? Even consider not buying my imaginary <laughs> yeah. book. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, I better do it. Yeah, yeah. What about what about you? What about you, Greg? Uh, what did what did you choose for the movie you would write a book about? Yeah, I would love to see myself write a book on the audition. If you listen to our our pod episode on that movie, you'll hear me talk about at great length, much like our esteemed guest today, there being a completely different movie going on underneath mm. it, that surface that explains a lot of the crazy stuff um, that you see when you're watching the movie. And, you know, the fact that seeing the other side of that coin boosted that movie's, you know, otherwise trash rating for me to a near perfect score tells you a lot about how I value artwork that has layered meaning to it and alternative um, understandings and, and, and meanings to it. So yeah, the audition would be something I could write and almost, you know, talk about the, uh, it being a completely different movie that you need to see. Mm. Yeah. You were the one that had a completely different opinion than me and Laura 
yeah. in that movie. And I think it'd be in the end, me and Laura are like, you're dumb. Your your idea is stupid. But <laughs> you write a book about it, you might change our minds, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Dare to be, dare to, you know, you have to be risky. You have to risk it to get the biscuit. I, I would write that book. <laughs> that was is, that, is, is that the title of the book? <laughs> they're like wait is there a biscuit in this movie like wait what's happening (laughs) (laughs) i don't know how that translates to japanese greg i don't know if that phrase is gonna work over there yeah but uh okay nice i like it i like it yeah for me my obvious one i picked return to oz for me like mine would be more like a document documentary like like why this movie fucking got made why this movie got made like why is it so horrific but geared towards children i would do a whole like book about like the making of this movie and how it actually got made and how nobody viewing it thought like how could we even say this is pg how can this be a disney movie like nobody said anything along the way i would just do that more or less not really about but that's also you know if you think about it that's also one of the movies we reviewed where we went really deep into the psyche of the movie how every character in that movie is actually dorothy's like mind and trying to deal with that so i could go into that too would you have biscuit in the title of your book <laughs> biscuit <laughs> yeah i would yeah. L- laura yours is 90c maybe you could have limp biscuited in the title oh, of no, your book. Oh, no. you came uh, dressed as limp biscuit that episode did do I? you remember oh that's right you did yep. you were fred durst yeah, yeah. You're all, all about, about the, the nookie. nookie. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make our books a trilogy, the Trace Biscuits. <laughs> Trace Biscuits. <laughs> wow. Our, our guest tonight is probably like, these books are fucking garbage, guys. <laughs> yeah, as if we know the first thing about writing a book where we're going to interview an author, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, but I, I will add, Rob, I would be so supportive if you decided to rewrite the script oh of Return to Oz. I feel like you would nail that. Or rewrite right? it? You what, would nail go, that. Even, I would go more fucked up, though. I would go really <laughs> fucked up. Well, but see, then we would market that as a new film, and we would say, like, this is rated R. It's a horror film. Yeah. Okay. All right. Let me start working you on that. You know, I already have two other scripts I'm working on at the time, so I'll put, I'll put that on the put there this too. Will be yeah. Number one. Ooh. Yeah. It'll be Return to Biscuit. Yeah. Yeah. Return the biscuit. Put the biscuit <laughs> Whoa, in we're the just, basket. We're, 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 we're spitballing here now. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Oh, well, we're all going off track here. Yeah, so if anybody wants to email us and let us know what uh, horror-ish movie or horror movie they could possibly write a full book on, including The Biscuit, uh, you can hit us up, ConjecturingPod at Gmail, or Twitter, Instagram at ConjecturingPod, or you can also leave us a voicemail on our website, podpage.com slash ConjecturingPod. Just leave us a voicemail. Just say Biscuit and hang out. That'd be pretty cool. I'll take it. You know? <laughs> Oh, I got a new shirt design, Laura, I think. <laughs> Let's work on some biscuit shirts. It's just a biscuit. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh my goodness that's so funny uh so uh so let's let's, uh, let's get into our, our big segment here our interview here so you know like i said it's our main segment uh it's time to it's time to pick our poison let's get into it now mm-hmm. let's get into the interview let's listen to it we'll come back after the interview and we'll talk about how it is so uh, here's the interview right now with Gaurav Jen. Yes, so we're here uh, today. We're doing our first interview, Pick Your Poison segments. Uh, we have a special guest tonight. We have the author of The Mirroring, a uh, book we've all read. We're excited to talk about, talking about Stanley Kubrick, The Shining, delving really deep into what this movie means. We have uh, Grob Jane here, everybody. So uh, thank you for coming on, Grob. Uh, thank you for taking time out of your schedule. You know, I don't know if you're book touring right now. You seem super successful and awesome. We just really appreciate you being on with us. No, thank you for having me, and I love the podcast. 
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank we're glad. You. We're glad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think right away, like I really just wanted to ask you right away, like tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, not really about your book, really, but just about yourself and kind of who you are and what you're about. Sure, sure. I mean, I'm just a guy. I'm uh, I'm just basically born and raised in New Delhi. Went to college in Virginia. That was my fatal mistake. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> <laughs> that was that awesome, uh, awesome time I had. And and believe it or not, viewing The Shining was one of the uh, the highlights of my college uh, my college years. Since then, I've been back in India, and uh, I've been doing like lots of things. But always, The Shining has been in the back of my mind. And it's it's almost like an addiction, you know. It's almost like dealing with something that you kind of want to, you know, stop, but you can't. Like Danny opening the room, maybe to the two, three, seven. You know, it's that morbid curiosity. And uh, yeah, I just I just started working on this book seriously like a year ago or something. And uh, now I have it out there, so I'm just taking a break. But yeah, soon I'm probably going to be on a book tour or something. And uh, yeah, also working on a, on a sequel to the book. So oh, wow, wow, that that's really exciting. It's really exciting to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I think right away, like, let's just kind of like get a little bit into you know how this book came to be. You know how this book came to be for you. Like, how long of a journey is this for you? It's it's really long. It's like a twenty year uh, long journey. Like I saw it when I was twenty years old, and now I'm about forty one. So for about twenty years, I've been thinking about this movie. I'm not ashamed to admit it. You guys are horror fans, and they'll um, think that's really geeky, but it is what it is. I mean, I've been thinking about this. I basically started just like making notes to myself because it's so much information that I thought it might help me to just get it on a piece of paper. So I started making these notes and. Uh, you know, I was, I, once I figured it out and, uh, you know, it was just so, so amazing that I just spent a lot of time with it myself. And I was, I vowed never to like release a book or tell, tell anyone else uh, about this because, you know, it's so subjective that mm-hmm. I thought that everybody should sort of uh, experience it for themselves. But then it just kind of broke out of me like uh, that alien movie, you know, it just kind of jumped out of my chest. And I, <laughs> I love it. Yeah. Wow. That's crazy. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's different. That's one of our like taglines of our podcast is like horror is subjective, you know, so conjecture away of just like, yeah, everybody has a different opinion on a certain thing. And it's just it, everything is subjective, especially horror and, and movies and stuff like that. It's all about your life experiences and what you feel. And and so that that's really cool to hear. Um, I know I forgot to say, like, we're all we're all drinking something tonight, right? You got a drink with you, Grav? You got a drink with you tonight? You got a beer? I had a drink with me. I wonder where it went. Just oh, give yeah. me a second. <laughs> oh, okay. no. You yeah, go wonder get it. where yeah, it get, went. Get that so. drink. Get that yeah. drink. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I tell. Well, I won't. <laughs> he's trying to be professional. So he's like, let me leave the beer. And I'm like, no, go get that beer, man. Get that beer. I got my beer going now. So. There we go. That is a heroic glass there we go. that you are I holding. I love it. Yeah, my wife asked. Yeah, tell her that it's a requirement. You have to drink to be on this podcast. <laughs> yes! <laughs> it is. It actually is. Yeah. Yeah. We're all. Uh, it's it, written in the fine print. Yeah. It really you is. Got a, you got a beer going. <laughs> I know we got uh, we got some Jack Daniels we're drinking tonight. You know, so cheers. Right. Cheers, everybody. You know. Cheers. Cheers. Nice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Laura, Laura, do you want to ask a question, Laura? have a follow-up question to your 20-year-long journey. I guess, can you pinpoint exactly how long it took you to crack this movie? I mean, it took 20 years, you were writing notes, and then it all just kind of spilled out of you. But was it something where it all came 
flooding in at once and you immediately wrote the book or is it something that you've been breaking down little by little? Great question. I wish more people asked me, asked me this, but no, it was, uh, it was actually 19, 19 years of frustration <laughs> and then one wow. little lisp, and all of a sudden it just hit me. And then it was a year of sort of painfully unraveling it. Not painfully, that was actually a lot of fun, but, um, yeah, the 19 years were frustrating because, you know, you're so close. It's like, it's like something, you know, that you're almost there and yet it eludes you. So that was really frustrating. Wow. That's wow. crazy. That's crazy. Gaurav, we're about to get a little bit of when you first saw this movie. Can you kind of recap when you first saw it? What was that experience like? And then, you know, when you watched it for the first time, was there this splinter in your mind? at that time and was everybody else you know at that time thinking that there were deeper meanings to this movie or it's just something that really developed um you know over time between then and now uh no i mean i it's, it's really interesting when i first saw the movie i was already studying film in, in college but uh for some reason they hadn't really covered stanley kubrick you know there was a lot of psycho alfred hitchcock but there wasn't a lot of Kubrick and I just, I'd heard about this movie and my friends were like, oh my God, you have to watch this. It's the scariest uh, movie of all time. So I was like, all right, whatever. You know, I wasn't a big horror fan then. And uh, yeah, I just on a whim, I, I remember I had an exam the next day, but I was like, all right, let me just go, let me just go see this because it's at the beautiful uh, Williamsburg Theater. So I went there and uh, yeah, immediately I wasn't scared so much as I was, I was just entranced. I was like, I, like there was something and I had no like way to verbalize it, but there was something that just stuck in my, in my brain that there's something going on here for the first time in my life. There's something that is more than what it appears to be. And, uh, yeah, I mean, is that, is that the same experience that everybody has? I mean, do you guys also, do you get the sense that there's something happening here that we don't understand? Or? Yeah. I first saw this movie. Well, I can't say this movie, uh, very, Shamefully, I, I saw the TV version when I was a kid. And I, you know, when you're that little, everything is just, uh, scary imagery. So I really got around to watching this movie fully for the first time and comprehending everything when we reviewed it in our podcast. And that was definitely my, uh, my experience too. It's just like, I mean, these guys saw what my notes looked like. Uh, it is really just, and, and this is where I feel like I empathize with you, Gaurav, where, you know, you have a, a few ideas and they just branch out, they spider out into so many other ideas and layers. Um, so that was definitely something that I, I, I felt too. Um, didn't you guys kind of notice that when you were watching it? I'll let Rob go next because I think my story is a little different. Well, I was going to say, Laura, you definitely need to go because you're the one between all of us that have watched this multiple oh, yeah. times and years. And I was more like Greg. I watched it for maybe the first or second time on the pod and and everything. And, and, and you know, I had, I had years of people telling me it's a top five horror movie of all time and this and that. So I had that going in. So it wasn't like I went in fresh back in the day where I knew nothing about it or it could kind of blow my mind. People have been talking it up for so long that I already kind of knew what was going on. So it really didn't. And like hit me super hard like that but i definitely could tell watching it that it does feel like something else is going on beneath the surface of things in this movie you know it wasn't until knowing that there's a book out there called the mirroring this uh Grav wrote it and being like all right let me dig into this so um yeah but what about you laura you're definitely the one that's seen this the most between all of us i think my experience is pretty backwards compared to most so i did see the movie first and then I immediately went and read Stephen King's The Shining. And 
if you listen to our episode of The Shining, I go into a lot of the differences between yes, I, I heard that. Stephen King and then Stanley Kubrick's movie. But there's also a lot of things that we couldn't understand or comprehend. And so I would then refer back to the book and say, well, you know, they they do dive in deeper on this in, in Stephen King's book. And this is what he says. And we kind of took that as, yep, that, that's got to be it. That's the answer. I, so I think I feel like we have dove into this super deep. However, uh, you know, it's no secret that Stephen King wrote this book to be supernatural. So it's almost like I think we all thought, well, then that's it. It can't go deeper than that because Stephen King yeah. wrote it. So, you know, we... we <laughs> it's the gospel. Yeah, it's the gospel. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, I'd love for you to kind of be honest a little bit here and just kind of tell us how you feel about Stephen King's version of The Shining, the book. Uh, I, there's no secret that, you know, uh, I'm not a, I'm not a massive Stephen King fan. Like, I like his work and, uh, he's such a, he's such a famous writer. He's written so many, so many good stories, like again and again. So he's, he's doing something right. But, uh, like, I mean, his, Stephen King's work is, is supernatural for the most part. And he is, mm -hmm. he's basically, he's a, he's, he tells ghost stories, which is great. But Stanley Kubrick is on another level where, you know, we're dealing with one of the most enlightened people. So there's just no comparison. And what Stanley did was he took Stephen's idea, he took his, his, his story, and then he built his movie on it, which is, which is how he normally makes movies. You know, he starts off with a, with a good story and then he, he tells that story more deeply than usually the author tells it. So that's basically Stanley's style. So they're, they're really not comparable in that sense as serious works of art. And, uh, it's just unfortunate that Stephen King has decided to go against the, uh, the Kubrick version. Mm -hmm. I mean, he should have, he should have hitched his wagon through that thing. He kind of, uh, you know, resists it. And that's, that's going to be, let's just say that's going to be interesting when I get, uh, on my book tour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i'd love yeah. to hear about that <laughs> that's too. cool yeah 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 let's uh let's let's get into like more of the book now can, so grub can you can you describe like really what your book is about and kind of give us a little rundown and we'll ask some more questions about the book sure. i mean it's basically uh this book my book is basically a stanley cupid movie and uh i know that sounds weird but there's like the uh the phantom movie that sort of uh, made from beyond the grave and it sort of just materializes by itself uh, 40 years after The Shining has been released and uh, it's it's almost as if like he knew what was going to happen because he's such a good chess player he knows exactly how everybody's going to make their moves and where they're going to be in about 40 years so uh, I think the way to read this book and to watch the movie is that you guys are reading the book right now right like you're almost done Mm -hmm. So once you're done with the book, then what you should do is watch The Shining again. And this time you're going to see the mirroring because you're going to get ghosts and those kinds of things out of your, out of your mind. And what you focus on is the, uh, you know, it's the psychological, mm -hmm. uh, and that's how you, how you watch this movie as a very serious. And there's no end to it. Like, I mean, even if you're a psychologist or even if you have a PhD in psychology, I mean, you still get to learn more about the human brain. So here Stanley, uh, literally like explains it as an illustration, as a children's illustration, which can be picked up by, you know, maybe a 10 year old. Mm -hmm. So you could theoretically spend your whole life just, just learning from this book, like some ancient text, you know? Wow. Yeah. I think that's, that's uh, a, such an interesting concept because I think it's foreign to most people. When people think about movies, 
I would say, let's be honest, 99% of the movies that we watch in our lives, we watch it once and we put it down. And in fact, when you tell me to recall a movie, I'm like, oh, I've seen it, but that really doesn't mean anything because I hardly remember anything about it except maybe who's in it. So telling a person that a movie is actually two movies or three or four or infinite is like a, I think it's a foreign idea and people can't imagine how that works. Can you kind of talk about that aspect of it? Yeah, it's, it's such a crazy, uh, it's when you put it in words, it's such a crazy concept that people are just, I can see their eyes just like blank over and they're like, oh my God, this guy is a loony tune out here. You know, the only, that's actually a really good question because it really gets into the structure of how this movie is made. And, uh, that's what interests me, like the, you know, the artistic devices that are involved here, um, and how they're used by Kubrick. So the closest, like, parallel I can give you is, uh, is actually like the, uh, ancient, like, Greek mythology, like the mm-hmm. mythological stories from ancient Greece. And the way that works is, uh, you know, like, you basically like hear these stories. They're, they're more than stories. They're like living stories. So you kind of live with them throughout your life. And when you first hear them as, as a child, you know, you, for example, if you hear the story of Icarus, that kind of scares you because, uh, like, uh, it kind of implies that the, that the kid basically gets hurt, uh, falls into the water. And that's supposed to scare the kids, uh, into listening to their parents. Right. And, uh, and then you grow up a little bit and uh, hopefully if you're still interested in that story, you go back to that story when you're sort of uh, a mature adult and then there's there's much, much more to it all the way to like, you know, the very like largest questions that face mankind, like the nature of evil and the existence of man. I mean, there's just no end to it. So this is similar to that. But what makes this fun is that it's designed to do that. Whereas... The, the ancient Greek stories are kind of like, I would say they're, they're similar to like a paper boat, whether this is actually like a working model boat. So now that's the difference. Wow, I'm getting too much into this. <laughs> no, that's excellent. No, I, I love More it. Yeah. I'm doing good. Yeah. Take, take another, take another drink. Take another drink. Yeah. Yeah. We're good. We're going good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Laura, do you want to ask uh, another question? Man, I'm trying to think of, a book specific question to oh, ask do you want me to right go then because i'll just I'll yeah jump right why in. don't okay. you go because i'm still yeah. so so my my biggest question we'll get into we, let's get into the book stuff now because i think that's really the stuff we want to ask we we talked to grav ahead of time we said like what can we ask what can we not ask he said let it all go so we're we're gonna jump in here so i mean the biggest thing to me one of the things i highlighted because i was just like what the fuck is pretty much is pretty much that what you state in your book that at one point that that Jack actually doesn't have a family that it's all in his head is that yes. is that correct yes now we're getting to the uh, the upper part of this uh, narrative Jack yeah that's as creepy as it sounds Jack uh, when you think about it and when you finally understand the uh, the second level of the shining the mirroring you realize that Jack doesn't he's even more isolated than we think he doesn't even have a family. I mean, the family is, uh, I know it's going to shock you, but it, it will sink in in a little while that it's, it's basically just, uh, an illustration of his own mind. So, like, once you get your head around the fact that, uh, the characters of Grady and the, uh, the barman Floyd, once you start realizing that those are projections of Jack's own mind, then you realize that his family is also just a projection of his mind. He doesn't really have a wife or a child, but the wife sort of, um, the wife uh, symbolizes, it's a metaphor for his medulla oblongata. I don't know if I'm saying that right, like the middle part of the brain. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, neuroscientists could learn from this because, I mean, it's so brilliant. And uh, his inner child, I mean, his child is uh, 
Danny is really his inner child. It's uh, mm. Danny is sort of a metaphor for his creative powers or his imagination or whatever you want to call it. I mean, like you have uh, great women writers in history who've kind of done this, but the other way around, like they show characters without any logic, like only their inner child run wild. And what Kubrick has done is kind of flip that on its head where he takes a a character, but then he sort of takes away the the inner child. And uh, at one point in the story, he just makes the character behave completely logically and, uh, you know, mechanically. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, you can see it both ways, but as we go ahead, it's going to become clearer and clearer that it's just basically the story of one man and the internal drama, the internal drama in his head. That's what's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's really cool when you think about it. It's basically this uh, brain story, literally, like it's a story mm. of, a, of one man's brain at war with itself. Wow. Sorry, I tend to go on too long. Just, just no, 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 no. No, you're more, doing great. The this more information, great. the better. We're, 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 I'm just fascinated at, at listening to it. So I'm always just like, oh my God, keep going. Yeah, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. Uh, Laura, do you have a question now that I got the ball well, rolling? I have another follow up. Is this kind of what your sequel is going to be about? Is that like a, a level three? So if the mirroring yes. is level two, this will be level three where it is all in his own mind. Is that kind of the direction that you're headed? Yes. In? But I mean, the level, the, 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 it's all in his mind. It's, it's part of level two. I mean, you guys are already reading that part where, uh, on level two, you can kind of read it as his family, but also as his own brain. But yeah, when, as we go further, it will become more and more the story of one man and one man's mind. Uh, but this level is kind of weird because you kind of see it both ways. You can see it as him actually having a physical family and the family is a metaphor for what's really happening in his brain simultaneously, like Fellini's eight and a half. Or it could be just all complete abstractions right from when Jack reaches uh, the Overlook for his interview and... Uh, as soon as he sees Alman's office, we cut to Danny not feeling, not, not wanting to go. So right from that point, it's, we see the internal, uh, mechanisms in, in Jack's brain oh. from the very beginning telling him that this isn't something that he wants to do. Oh. And, uh, meanwhile, his logical side is all like suited, booted and ready to go, you know? It's hilarious how he's like, he, he wants this job and he gets it finally, I guess. Right. Wow. That, that's so fascinating. Now that, now that you like set up, you, you actually described a scene for me, like breaking that down, uh, back and forth and in his mind. I'm like, Oh wow, that actually does work. That's really cool. Uh, what about you, Greg? Do you got a question? Yeah. So you were talking about just kind of the different, um, sides. And I think when we did our, our podcast episode on this, we definitely noticed that mirrors were a big theme in this. So that somehow plays yes. into, um, in the title of the book, right? Can you talk about just like how you came up with the title? What does it mean and how it applies to this, the structure of the various levels of this movie? Sure, sure. Another great question. I, I, I like how you guys are going about this. It's uh, so much more organized than I am. But yeah, that's a good question. Um, I, I was actually going to call this level the, the projecting mm. At, mm. in the beginning. And then I decided to call it the mirroring because, uh, it's really the, the mirroring between different things that sort of led me to think that something is going on. You know, you, you constantly see two things, but slightly different, just slightly, uh, you know, dissimilar from each other. And the more you explore that, the more you realize that they're actually opposites and they're so close to each other, but they're actually opposites. Just like a mirror, you know, when we see a mirror in our bathroom, uh, 
we think we're seeing ourselves, but it's actually the opposite of ourselves. It's 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 an inverted image. Um, just like a cheap phone in O'Brien Greedown, you know, you don't notice it because it's exactly <laughs> symmetrical, but it's it's actually inverted. So that's what I think this uh this kind of level is about because what we're dealing with here is an inversion of the human brain. Like when the human brain functions in a particular way, it's good. But when that, that whole thing is run backwards, it's run, um, you know, in the opposite direction, that is basically Kubrick's definition of insanity. Uh, and that leads to cannibalization and child abuse and, you know, rest, all the rest of the product placement, whatever. Yeah, abs- wow. absolutely. That was one thing that I remembered thinking about this movie. Uh, my one of the ideas that I had about, you know, the one of the themes was our, you know, talking about like psychology, our psych- psychological shields that we have and how our brain can be thought of as as the id, the ego and the super ego. And that kind of reminds me of what you're talking about. You know, you have these polarized sides. You have the id, which is like your primal needs. And you have the super ego, which is your moralistic, idealistic view. And then you have the ego, which is sort of the, the glue in between. And you can kind of look at Danny and Wendy and Jack kind of slotting into the sort of those roles in some way and, you know, them being mere opposites of each other at times. So, yeah, I think that's that's super cool that, that you've um, that you've looked at it that way and that the movie can be viewed in a completely different way. I mean, it's, it's even less uh, abstract than that, because, uh, you know, traditionally people have even great uh, psychologists have sort of used um, abstract terms to, to define different functions of the uh, of the human brain. But Kubrick is such a he's such a technician. I mean he's such a scientist first before he's an artist. I mean he understands the science behind it so well that he actually describes the brain more like physiologically, like Da Vinci would like he actually like Danny is basically the right brain of Jack. And Jack is the left brain, and uh, Wendy is the the middle part that sort of regulates the light functions and sort of makes the man tick. So it's it's really brilliant. I mean, it it does six things at once. You know, the the, the narrative does. Yeah, yeah, wow. yeah. I mean, I mean, you talked a little bit, you know, about the the abuse in this movie. And that's one of my other big questions. Is is uh, I I always thought that Jack possibly abused Danny. In, in that scene in this movie where, you know, he's all beat up. He goes in room 237, this and that. But, but you go as far as to say that he was sexually abused. Yeah, it's, it's, it's awesome because, you know, the Kubrick basically just edges you in to the, the most horrible thing ever. But he does it in such a way that, you know, you're constantly slipping down that slope and, and you're like, no, that would, that wouldn't be. Then you think that, okay, so this much is possible, then this must also be possible. But if you want to get into the forensics of it, which is what I like to do with some of my friends, is, uh, you know, you see those, uh, those, those bruises on Danny's neck and any kind of, uh, you know, like, uh, I guess forensics expert will tell you, uh, how, what, what kind of, uh, situation would, would cause those bruises and the, the tearing of the back of his Apollo 11, uh, sweater. Mm. And uh, I don't want to put it into words, but uh, you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Also, you use the answer metaphorically because you know it's basically the opposite of what's natural. So you can reach the answer like that. And what happens to Danny is just, uh, it's just, it's, it's, it's darker than anything else, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, can you explain to me then if, if that is the case? And then you're also talking about you know Danny being uh, left brain and Jack being right brain. Like, what does that actually mean for his brain then? If he's abusing his own side of his childish brain, like, what does that actually mean then? 
That's a that's a brilliant question, and that's that's really the crux of this uh, of this movie. Is that I mean, when we do that to to someone else, when we do that kind of thing to to sort of a defenseless person and kind of punch down on, on a child, or or when we you know in, indulge in anything which is anti-human, because we ourselves are human, and when we do that, we really have to start with first uh, abusing our own uh, humanity. You know, we have to first abuse our own right brain and subjugate that because if you have a functioning right brain, then it's not going to allow you to do that, to, to mm-hmm. for example, cannibalize someone, even if you're starving to death. Uh, you know, the, the human part of it just won't allow you to do that. So here what Jack does is he sort of first does that to himself. Like he says, you know, I must have done it to himself. And then he, he does that to Danny. But there's a parallel here about about why he does that and why he, why is it that his own left brain attacks his own right brain while he's isolated? And that's very interesting. And that has to do with isolation and the overlook and the nature of evil. And it's, it's, uh, it's really, it's, it's really complex, but I guess you guys get the gist of it. You know, that, that's basically what happens. Yeah. Well, uh, great. That's a great answer. That's a great answer. Every time you give an answer and it makes me understand what I was thinking in my head of a question, then uh, great. Good job. Good job. Because I, I definitely have a lot of questions and I'm glad you're able to answer them, actually. Uh, Laura, do you have a question? I do. I keep thinking of so many things. I have so many questions. <laughs> I, I do want to say real quick, because you just made me think of this. I love how you continuously will describe, you know, how the overlook is being shot at the beginning of each of these chapters and what that potentially means for that scene. I just, this isn't a question. I'm just telling you that that (laughs) that's one of my favorite. It's just, it's brilliant. I don't know. I I love that, but I, I I, yeah. I mean, do you have anything you want to add to that? I guess before I ask my next question. (laughs) No, no, that just go ahead. (laughs) Yeah. Really just, just brilliant. You know, yeah. So, um, so if, if anybody listening hasn't got the book, please get nice. the book uh, yes. and re- read the first uh, whatever that is paragraph of every chapter because it, it's Laura's favorite part of all these books. Yeah. So, uh, what's what's your next <laughs> question, Laura? I've got my Overlook shirt on right now. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. Cheers to that. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers, cheers to that. Cheers. Yeah. So I thought maybe we would follow up the you know, the more harder subject of what happens to Dan, what Jack does. And I, I just want to know what is your favorite scene of the movie and, or, and what was your favorite scene to break down in your book and explain to maybe viewers who didn't catch it, what was really going on? Oh, that's such a great question. Uh, I mean, it's, uh, it really comes down to that. You know, when you watch your favorite movie, you want to watch your favorite scene over and over again. Mm-hmm. Because you love it so much, and in that sense, it has to be the the scene where where Jack and uh, and Wendy kind of dance around the uh, the Colorado Lounge, and Wendy has that baseball bat, she's mm-hmm. about to like Jack Jack with it. That always, you know, when I first saw it, it was so it was so uncomfortable, <laughs> but now it's it's got to be the funniest funniest scene because it's so hilarious the way Jack's completely lost his mind, <laughs> and the way he sort of uh, you know he's like a He's basically a winter caretaker. And, you know, he's talking about contracts and, and how, you know, about his responsibilities. <laughs> mm-hmm. But um, but from a writer's point of view, I guess the last scene, the, the May scene, that's mm-hmm. really the most amazing. Because that's when Kubrick really, like, you know, unleashes his, uh, 
intellectual firepower just lets you have it just goes after it all guns blazing and uh people actually tell me that just seeing that scene helps them like mentally with mental health issues and just be more creative in general because it basically allows you to sort of tackle danger immediate danger without losing control of your of your mental mechanism and slip into that kind of you know fight or flight like uh war mode i call it mm-hmm. and it kind of works for me so i like to watch that scene sometimes wow yeah, that's absolutely. so cool gorov did, did i hear you say that the maze scene was amazing <laughs> that's funny uh when you were talking about the- <laughs> grab just signs off he's like i'm out <laughs> he's like i'm done <laughs> i'm done wait he's heard a couple episodes he knows this is what i do all the time yeah. <laughs> that's you know you're talking about how uh almost comedic uh jack's tone is when he walks up the stairs because he's he's completely out of touch with reality in that sense right mm-hmm. and that's one thing i i really enjoyed reading your book um was that it's this interesting idea that, you know, Jack is portrayed as the protagonist at the beginning of the movie. So the audience consistently misses things in the beginning that just don't line up with us painting him in that light. And I, I found that to be very, very true uh, in this movie. Yes. Uh, that's, that's, these are, I mean, some of the basics of storytelling that Kubrick kind of is comfortable enough to subvert and inward and dance around with. But that is, you're exactly right, that that is the reason why we never figure out what the hell is happening in this movie is because we're seeing it from Jack's point of view. And that, that sense of empathy is so strong in human beings. I and mean, human beings have this ability to get inside someone's head and sort of be that person and see things from their point of view. Like, for example, if you have a friend who's in trouble, then you just become that person. And it's the same with uh, with movies. You know, when we watch a movie and we have a hero or we have a protagonist, then we just basically worship him and we basically mentally subjugated ourselves to him. And in this movie, you know, Jack Nicholson is so, he's so popular and he's so good with, uh, you know, with his acting and he's such a big star that mm-hmm. every guy automatically just thinks he's Jack Nicholson. And I think a lot of girls also kind of think, uh, from his point of view that what would Jack Nicholson do? Mm-hmm. And that's why we miss it. But as you watch it again, the, uh, the different hints are all over the place about how he broke Danny's arm in the past and how he has this struggle with alcohol and, I mean, once you see that Jack is the uh, the villain of the piece, it's, you know, it's, it's almost, you almost kick yourself because you're like, oh my God, how can I be this dumb? But of course, that's what the movie's supposed to demonstrate, that how can something so sophisticated as a human brain have these, uh, these, these fallibilities, you know, these, these, uh, sort of, uh, chinks in the, uh, in the armor that once you understand them, it becomes very easy to sort of, uh, you know, do your dirty deeds. Yeah, it's a difficult task because, you know, we've talked about this on other podcast episodes where part of the draw, especially in movies where you have a very limited scope and a limited amount of time to convey a message and draw your audience in. And at the end of the day, you're spending millions of dollars. You have to make millions of dollars. Storytelling and relating to people is almost a must. I mean, we've seen so many movies where one of our chief criticisms is well there's nobody to relate to there's nobody to care about and we've questioned that the three of us back and forth many times do you absolutely need that well ideally no you shouldn't you know sometimes principles ought to hold up by themselves but we know just every story has characters we relate to people and oftentimes it's the people who have flaws because we all have flaws and people who are rough around the edges because we have edges that need to be rounded out too so it's a difficult task to 
you know, look at Jack as the bad guy because, you know, even his wife in the beginning covers for him. Uh, he makes relatively good excuses by saying this is all behind me. So it's difficult. I mean, you, you definitely have to watch this movie more than once to understand it. I mean, I, I think definitely at the point where he threatens the life of other, of, of Wendy and he's quote unquote fallen off the rails, then I think everybody's jump ship. Yeah. But, you know, the access to the door. That's when, uh, yeah, the tooth really shines out to us. Before that, I guess you're right. We just don't think of it. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I really wanted to ask you a little bit more about, uh, like Kubrick's just genius in this movie as far as something I, I didn't even realize until you pointed out in the book. I think you posted a couple of pictures on Twitter too, um, about the mistakes he has in this movie. You know, whether it's like a helicopter you can see on the ground or, or a, I think you call it out like a sticker, a dopey sticker on the door that's that's here and not. And like and, and you're kind of saying that these are all meant to be there, that Kubrick does not make mistakes. So can you get into that a little bit? Because I find it fascinating. Yeah, sure. I mean, he's such a perfectionist and, uh, you know, he loves his, his work so much. And that what kind of, that's what kind of comes through from his movies, even if you don't understand them. So Kubrick is so obsessive about his work and he's so involved with his work. I mean, I mean, this thing took five years to shoot. I mean, five years to make, uh, from Barry Lyndon in, uh, I think it was 75 and then this thing to 80. And then he was, he's been thinking about this before, like while he was making Barry Lyndon. So he doesn't make mistakes, but what he does do is that he's, he's fascinated by the audience's need to sort of, uh, dissect the, the movie. And how excited the audience feels when they discover a mistake because it sort of humanizes the director. It also makes the, uh, the uh, audience feel like smart because they figured out something that the director missed. So what he's done here is, is truly genius is that he's made these artificial mistakes. And, uh, you sort of, uh, I mean, a lot of people would see this movie and be like, Oh my God, what an amateur director. And he's so comfortable with that because he knows, uh, you know, on his side that Sooner or later, you're going to realize that these are not really mistakes because when you think about them, you realize that it, they, they couldn't have been mistakes because just in the way that the movie is made. For example, the carpet, like a lot of these things flip and then they flip back. Mm-hmm. It's like a magic mm-hmm. trick with prestige. So you kind of know that, you know, he's doing this purposely. Why he's doing it is more complicated. But like with the helicopter, with the helicopter scene, with the mistake with the shadow of the helicopter. I mean, there's just so many inferences that you can draw from that. And uh, Kubrick has sort of preempted all those inferences. So he's using your whole brain to sort of tell the story. And he's basically just widening the bandwidth more and more and more until you're basically in his brain. Um, I don't know if I'm being too like melodramatic about this. Must be the beer talk. <laughs> no, I... I, I... I told to get it. One thing I, I want to comment on that, uh, Gaurav, is I think that when you read, when, when you're reading through your book, I don't know how you guys did it, uh, Robin Laura, but I had the movie on the side yes. and going back and forth was so rewarding. Um, yes. You know, when, when you call it a lot of these things that Rob's talking about, like the tiger on the wall in Danny's room blew my mind. There are so many of these moments and then. I, I just I love how you're able to do it step by step. I mean, a lot of times when we review movies, we can't go linearly like that just because we don't have the time. But you have the time and you have the space to do it in the book. And it's just it's really rewarding to kind of have them side by side. And then at the end of each section, you kind of wrap it up, you know, all of these little bits into a bow and kind of gifted as well a summary of that that last scene. And 
I have to say thank you for doing that because it was a very uh, rewarding way to just kind of enjoy the scene that you just saw. Mm-hmm. No, it's very rewarding to do it. Like when you actually do that and you, is you have to put yourself in the mind of the viewer and, uh, you know, you have to understand how people would want to experience this. And that's exactly, exactly right that, you know, having the movie next to you is, is just perfect because, you know, then you can't even believe that that would be the case. And then you actually have to watch the movie. And even then you can't believe it. You're like, oh my God, I must be dreaming or something. But it's all there. And it's, uh, I mean, I'm glad that you guys are agreeing with me, but uh, I mean, is there something that, that didn't make sense? Or do you think there's some kind of flaw in my reasoning? I mean, I, I hope that I'm wrong about this. <laughs> Well, it's none of this stuff, at least. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that funny? You hope you're wrong about it because it's so deep and dark, but at the same time, yeah. it's like, oh, I don't know. It's pointing in that direction. Laura, did you did you have a? Did you, could you spot out anything? Yeah. So I'm. Maybe you can help me. You know, work through this. But the part that I'm having the most trouble with, and it's the part I'm actually on right now, is. Uh, so in your book, The Mirroring, you state that he actually killed Wendy and it's pretty obvious, but I am having trouble with that because, and it's probably just me not wanting to let it go. You know, you hold on to this movie you've seen a million times, Yeah. but I just is, yeah. Can you help me, you know, understand that and get to that point? Because I'm just like, what? No, he didn't. She's alive and well. (laughs) That's still shocking to me. And I wrote the book, but it's, uh, it's really shocking to me and it's actually I got to this from more filmmaking storytelling perspective because this is a classic Kubrick where he will he will sort of give you a false and like a fake ending, a fake happy ending. Mm. And uh, this is a technique that I think he really perfected and now it's been well, I mean almost everything in film uh, was first thought of by Mr. Kubrick and then now it's just become uh, sort of a classic uh, canon of movie making. But um, here what he's done is something very similar to what I guess Hollywood does, but in reverse, where they would sort of tack on a happy ending at the end of, uh, of a movie. So I guess it's kind of similar to that where you have a happy ending, but you can also uh, discern the, the actual ending, which is not so happy. And that actually makes uh, makes much more sense scientifically and uh, artistically and, uh, you know, psychologically. So when you think about it, you know, there's just no way that in a Kubrickian universe where, which is even more like uh, logical than our, I would say a normal universe, uh, there, there's just no way that Wendy could have survived after all the mistakes that she makes and how weak she is and, and uh, every single, like, you know, uh, time that she escapes, she gets lucky, basically. Mm. I mean, she hits him on the head just by pure luck. So I guess from that perspective, uh, you know, when you see that axe kind of going through the, through the door and then through Wendy, that's another classic, uh, Kubrickian move where a lot of his, uh, a lot of his compositions, just by shifting your perspective and just by looking at it from three dimensions. I mean, you can shift your perspective in many ways, but this is the, the simplest shifting of perspective where you, like, that's what a painter would do, I guess. And I imagine uh, also what a director would do when you, when you look at a composition, you sort of look at it in two dimensions to sort of capture it on a flat panel, um, such as a canvas or 35 mm film and from that perspective it's it's clear to see that the, the axe kind of goes through the door and through Wendy and she screams so hard that you know it's almost as if you're making contact mm. and then when you sort of uh, look at it psychologically also kind of makes sense and uh, 
you understand that 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 that's just another way of reading the film. So that that's the thing with with Kubrick and with the ancient Greeks is that you can read it any which way you sort of want to read it. You know, a lot of people choose to read the the fact that Danny uh, was just basically slapped around by Jack, or just because you know that's that's where they can go. They can't go much further. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, Kubrick takes it all the way, and it's 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 fairly obvious that that Wendy gets killed and what's funny is that then we have Wendy sort of uh, haunting the the Overlook Hotel the uh, in the last scene I mean that can't be that has to be an abstract sort of uh, <laughs> right. uh, yeah I mean that, there's no way that's real that's the most unreal thing in the movie and uh, people- it's Rob's favorite part <laughs> Yeah, the the, the, the I, I mean, yeah, I guess the fur the the furry uh, butt flap guy and this and that is like a it's a scene I always call out when I saw it for the first time. I was like, what the hell is yeah. happening here? And this and that. And now we have jokes about it, uh, you know. But uh, but what do you what do you think that scene actually means? Is there like a meaning behind a furry with a butt flap open? Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, of course, of course. <laughs> 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 that is the be- that is the only answer yeah. to that question. No, it does have meaning. Like most movies, barely make sense on one level, you know. Mm-hmm. And this thing, and you're lucky if you're watching a movie that makes sense on two levels. But here, things are making sense on every conceivable level, on every planetary, interplanetary, like you know, space and time. So it it, it makes sense in every which way, except. For when you're sitting in a theater watching movies, so that's mm-hmm. what's interesting about it. And uh, yeah, it, 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 for our purposes on this level, you know, it's obviously a sort of a child's imagination of sort of sexual abuse mm-hmm. and a sort of subject, uh, like sort of subjugative sexual experience, where you know the bear is obviously a slave to the uh, to the overlook uh, to the overlook guest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's always funny when you see that overlook guest to sort of look around and he. <laughs> He has this expression that, hey, what's going Close on? Close the door. Busy hairs, you know? So that's that's really funny. Yeah, because I was going to ask, like, if the butt flap was closed, would that have been <laughs> a better, like, like a better a, a better thing for for digging deep into it? Or the fact that the butt flap is open, is that means something different? Or you know what I mean? Like, like is it open? So that means it's an exposed brain or an exposed synapsis or something like that. I don't know. You know, I'm, I'm just trying to get onto your path and your brain waves and seeing what that flap means. You know what I mean? That flap changes the whole like trajectory of the movie. Oh, oh my goodness! Uh, yeah, I'm pretty. Sh- I'm pretty sure that was Kubrick's note. He's like, "We got to have that flap open." He's like, "I need yeah. that flap." It was a big discussion with Jack Nicholson. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. Uh, Laura, Greg, do one of you guys got to let, let's, let's start getting maybe wrapping it up here. I think we've been going close to an hour, maybe right around there. You know, um, okay. so let's do a couple I, more questions. Laura, what do you got? I do want to ask. It seems like, and I love this, you know so much about Stanley Kubrick. And so I assume you probably studied all of his filmography. Like you're pretty familiar with all of the other movies he's done. I I read that you mentioned them in the book. So how how would you compare, you know, the passion you have towards his work in The Shining with some of his other films? I mean, are there other films of his that you actually prefer over The Shining or are more passionate about? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, they're all just like having children, you know, they're all, they're all special people. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> you love them all in their own way. Yeah. Each of them are like it's not like the shining is uh, is the exception. I mean, every single thing. I would say two thousand one and Eyes Wide Shut are his uh-huh. other masterpieces. Two thousand one is probably what he set out to 
to make his new masterpiece. Mm-hmm. And uh, and a lot of The Shining is connected to that. I think I put that in the book, how this whole psychological uh, example and the psychological metaphor that I'm giving you between these three characters uh, in The Shining is also similar to the uh, sort of psychological representation of the human being in 2001. Mm. Where you have the uh, logical side, uh, sort of, uh, depicted with, by the computer, by, by HAL 2001. And then you have the, uh, the more human creative side, uh, you know, who draws pictures of his sleeping, uh, colleagues, uh, <laughs> as, you know, Bowman, who represents humanity. And then you have the other guy, Poole, who also, uh, in, who in his spare time plays chess. So he's also sort of, he, he might be the middle brain, but he's, he's leaning more towards, the middle brain is now leaning towards HAL 2000, I mean HAL 9000, as opposed to, uh, the human side. So, yeah, I mean, I like, sorry, I, I went up on a tangent, but yeah, I like, I like 2001 a lot. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a great movie to have in the background. And of course, Eyes Wide Shut is still, I think, uh, you know, in its infancy, it's sort of, uh, that's what happens to all Kubrick movies. We start understanding it, um, you know, 10 years into it. The French probably start understanding it a little bit earlier, but the rest of us, uh, yeah, what takes us 10, 15 years to just get a feel for it. And, um, I like Eyes Wide Shut because the, the guy who wrote the original story for that, Arthur Schnitzler, is, uh, probably one of my favorite, uh, writers mm-hmm. because he's also a very intelligent uh, person he's, he's basically like the freud of literature he's like the artistic equivalent of uh, of freud so his work is also very cerebral and uh, he also is very interested in the human mind and his story is just i mean to have his story be done by kubrick and then nicole kidman act in it and i think my cup will you know run it over so yeah. i love watching that movie yeah <laughs> or if, if you had a if you had a chance to have a nice, on a beautiful day or at the Overlook Hotel, a nice lunch with Kubrick today. <laughs> Just spend an hour with him in, or two hours. Oh my what, God. What would you say to him? Oh. What, what does that conversation look like? Uh, He's like, two hours isn't enough. <laughs> of course it's not. That's exactly the point. First hour probably would be me gently weeping. Oh, <laughs> oh my God. What have I done to deserve this? No, I have a lot of questions for him because, you know, he's one of those guys who's, who's not only, not only does he know the answers, which is hard enough, but he's very articulate explaining those answers to us mere mortals, you know, which I find that doesn't come easily to a lot of people. It didn't come easily to Tesla, I thought. And, uh, yeah, I mean, there's so many questions I want to ask him. I think movie making would be the least of my concerns. You know, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask him about, um, as, as I, as I release more and more books about The Shining, you realize that he's, I mean, he's not really a movie maker. Is more of you know, like I, I think I wrote in one of my tweets that it's like the, if the Buddha had decided to, to make movies, you know. <laughs> yeah. He's, he's, you, we really have to think of him as as this giant intellectual figure, like in mankind, like the history of mankind, like maybe Da Vinci or uh, Christ or uh, Michael Mann. I don't know, probably not that, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, someone, someone who basically knew the answers and fought the good fight. And I think he's, he's, what's amazing about him is I think he's done it. I think he's defeated. This might sound like, again, uh, the ramblings of a drunk man, but he really has, like, here's, here's some reason to rejoice. He really has defeated evil. I mean, it's, 
it might sound weird, but what he's done is he's defeated evil, and it's just going to take a long time for us for us to sort of for us to understand what's just happened. But um, yeah, I think he has all the answers, and, and that's going to be a lot of fun. And, and if, if this lunch was at the Overlook Hotel, then oh, yeah. I'm there, like you know. <laughs> In the gold room, right in the middle, with with the band playing in the background, you have one question. I mean, was there anything about this movie that you feel like, you know, I could use a little bit of insight from from you know the horse's mouth? If you had one question about The Shining itself, ask me the butt flap, right? Butt flap, right? It's, it's the butt flap. Come on, that's what I would ask. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's probably going with the butt flap. Yeah, <laughs> I'll carry a question, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll make sure they put. Four of us at least know that you know what that means. Uh, no, but I would I would want to ask him if he like what his relationship was to the to the to the, to the studio and to the powers that be and and what exactly was it that that drove him to make The Shining. I think it's it, wow. it was maybe that his uh, his other movies got cancelled like AI and uh, the Aryan Papers and uh, uh, Napoleon. Napoleon was his, uh, you know, was his favorite project to work on. And Kubrick works on a project. He just basically lives it. He basically just buys every book possible and reads it again and again. Wow. So I think what might have happened was that because his movies didn't work out. And that's where, like, the, the Shining is basically his, his big, like, F you to the system. And he's like, you know what, guys, I tried. If you're going to do this to me, I'm going to burn, like, you know, your half, you know, half and a half. So. <laughs> oh, I love it. That's so cool. That's so cool. Yeah. I mean, for me, I think my last question probably is going to be just, just what do you hope readers take away from your book? I just hope, uh, you know, readers, if they agree with me or disagree with me, I hope they at least understand the, the significance of this, uh, of this work. You know, this, this work that's disguising itself as, as something insignificant. And I hope that they sort of, uh, get involved. Like they, they make the shining as part of their lives and as part of their intellectual sort of growth because there really isn't much, you know, on Netflix that can help you sort of grow as, as a human being. <laughs> and I feel like school has failed us and the government has failed us. And it's up to the artist really to, to do everything. And Kubrick basically raises, rises to the challenge. He's like, you know what? I'm educating all these kids. And uh, it really leads to sort of an intellectual, doesn't just lead to like fact, like factual learning, but it teaches you how to think and it teaches you how to sort of uh, solve problems and Kubrick was big about solving problems and uh, what he said was that once you understand how to solve problems it's they're all problems I mean it, you just use that same technique for everything that's what I think is missing that people just don't understand how to solve problems they just sort of take problems as, as God gave them and they just you know run away um, so yeah I think The Shining is going to be a great effect on people it already is a great effect on a lot of people they can't verbalize it they can't really express it but it has played a positive role in the development of their intellects. And I hope I'm doing my part. And uh, I hope I was, uh, you know, I was able to help you guys uh, answer some of these questions. You most definitely are. Absolutely. <laughs> great. I, I feel like I have more questions now than I started before we had, <laughs> but I had questions like. <laughs> the questions are infinite. Always. Yeah. yeah. yeah they're, they're infinite. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's what they say. The reward for solving a Kubrickian. Uh, puzzle is just another cubicle puzzle. Yeah. That's what they <laughs> so yeah, true. That's so true. That's so true. Yeah. I mean, we just want to say thank you again for coming on, talking with us about the book and, and going into so deep into what the meaning is. And we really appreciate it. I mean, I know, I think right when we get off here, I'm going to go start watching The Shining right now. Uh, yeah. you know, get, go to a couple of scenes, stuff like that and check it out. Uh, but, uh, you know, your book is on Amazon, I believe. Uh, you can get it for Kindle. Um, all that stuff, the mirroring, uh, you can check it out. If anybody listening hasn't got it, please get it. 
And like we figured out through this recording, it seems like the best way to do it is read it while watching the movie, more or less. Yes. Because mm-hmm. that seems the best way that you really break down what's going on and really start blowing your mind about certain scenes, uh, which is really cool. So so thank you again for coming on. Do you have any last words before we go here? No, just thank you guys for having me. And uh, I hope you got something out of that. And I hope to maybe in a year or so be back with my new book. So yeah, and I will be hearing about podcast. So good yeah. luck with that. That sounds great. We Absolutely. would love that. If we ever, if we ever review Eyes Wide Shut, we would love to have you on oh, to review man. that movie. That'd be super cool. Actually, I would love that because I have I've seen it once and I have a lot of questions. So. I'd love to do that. Let's do that. Let's make that happen. Speaking of Stanley Kubrick, so you know it's ten fifteen p.m. right now on March seventh. Uh, yes. As you know, Pacific Standard Time, we're recording, and today is actually the day that Stanley Kubrick passed away in 1999. And we did not do this on purpose. I mean, it just was the that's how we scheduled it. And I feel like it's fate, you know. So I say we do a, a cheers to the man. Cheers to Stanley. Stanley. Cheers, to the man. Cheers. cheers to Stanley. Stanley. Cheers. Nice. Cheers to injection. Oh, thank you, thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. We're back from our interview here. Um, so what did you guys think? How do you think the interview went? How do you think Rob did? What do you think, Laura? I thought it went so well. I love this guy. He's great. Everyone, if you're a Shining fan or a Stanley Kubrick fan, buy this book. Buy this book. I, I agree. What, what do you think, Greg? How do you think it went? Oh, great. Gorov's a, a super cool guy. I feel like we could talk to him for hours about this book. We are big fans of this movie. Like you guys mentioned, our longest uh, episode ever, just talking about it. There are definitely just layers upon layers of of stuff to talk about. And, you know, we barely scratched the surface. Uh, and uh, so, yeah, really great interview. Yeah, I thought it was pretty cool. We got, almost got like a inside scoop or whatever we call it on like he's doing a second book and what it might be about. And yeah, so that was super cool, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah, if anybody wants to check him out, like uh, check him out on Twitter, you know, it's where we kind of like hit him up and where we met him more or less. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at at uh, GXJane, J-A-I-N. So you guys can follow him on Twitter, hit him up, let him know you bought his book, how cool it is or anything like that. Uh, we definitely would support it. Um yeah, so let's let's get to the closing now of the episode here. This is the end of our, our month. Uh, so we're going to be talking about all the stuff coming next month. So this is our big reveal where we all make our announcements of what we picked and what we got going on. We do this once a month now. Um, so so let's see what we're conjecturing for the month of April now. I'll start since my movie pick is actually going to be the first pick. Uh, I'm going to be picking The Blair Witch Project. I'm going to be picking that movie. It just became available, I believe, on Netflix the past couple of weeks. So I know it's going to be on there for a while now. Uh, readily available for mostly everybody to to watch i mean it's i mean it's a pretty fucked up movie it's something i remember watching back in the day when it came out it really started the whole like found footage ish uh horror movies and stuff like that i mean we have the ending we can talk about which i think might be a whole 20 30 minute conversation alone uh you know and stuff like that so uh, that's what i'm picking i'm excited for that you guys of course have seen it right i think everybody's seen that damn movie right oh yeah yeah right yeah so this will be cool uh one to watch for us uh laura you're up next you got the following week what are you picking i'm going with a not well-known film here it's called coherence it is a sci-fi thriller came out in 2013 and you guys can find it on Tubi for free or Hulu. And I actually think it might be on Prime as well. Mm. It is crazy. I've seen it once before and it literally blew my mind. I mean, we're talking like triangle blew my mind. Dang. 
That was a good mind blow. <laughs> okay. Greg liked that joke. See no comment. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Cool. Yeah. I haven't seen it, so that, that sounds cool. Have you seen it, Rob? No, of course I I haven't seen it. No, no. That'll be that'll be cool watching that, you know. There's like um, no well known actors in it, although if you're a Buffy fan, you're gonna recognize somebody in there. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Uh and Greg, you're the following week, so what are you picking, Greg, for, for the third week? Right. So my pick's gonna be two thousand three's identity. Oh. So, you know, John Cusack, Ray Liotta, Goodfellas Sin City, Amanda Pete, John C. McGinley. Um, you know, I after doing the seven uh, mm-hmm. episode, I was kind of on this kick of thinking about murder and mysteries. And, um, you know, this is a this is a classic, you know, a bunch of people get stranded at a motel with serial killer on the loose. So um, very interesting movie. So I, I can't wait to, to review this one with you guys. Yeah. yeah, another another rainy movie. You guys are going to be all wet for Ooh, that. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Hey, I, what? Wow. I, I, come Jesus. on. I, I meant rain. Dirty. Jeez. Get your mind out of the gutter. You're a family on. friendly. Pu- oh. No, we're not. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, we talk about what we're going to put on onesies. We're definitely not that family friendly. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, yeah. after that is going to be our listener choice for the month. It's actually going to be a special listener choice. We're actually bringing on one of our Slash and Cast Network peeps, Paige from Revere True Crime Podcast. So she's going to be on, and her pick is actually going to be The Craft, 1996 The Craft. You got Nev Campbell, you got Rachel True, you got Robin Tooney, Tunney, you know, whatever. I don't know how to pronounce her name exactly. And then our very own Return to Oz alum, Faruka Balk. Uh, you got her on there again. And I know Paige, you know, I was messaging with her saying she wants to talk a little bit about Return to Oz too. So that'll be pretty cool getting her opinion of that movie too. So that's going to be a super fun review. Uh, the Craft, a little bit Return to Oz, have a special guest page on. Uh, that'll be really cool. And then last we have uh, Laura's your first pick your poison, you know. So what uh what's going to be your pick, Laura? What poison are we drinking? All right, so we're going to go back to doing our top five lists each. Okay, I am titling this segment "So Extra: The Scene Stealers Edition." Mm, okay. okay, okay. So I want you guys and myself to come with your top five secondary or supporting characters from any horror-ish movie. So basically the only rules are it can't be the main character or like final girl, no character like that. And it can't be the main villain. So I know in some movies there's multiple villains. It can't be Mm -hmm. the main villain. So it has to be like a secondary character it can either be you felt like the supporting character was just solid all the way through, or there was a scene where you truly feel like this was a scene stealer from this horror-ish movie. I love that. I can already think of half a dozen right now that I that's that stand out in my mind. Oh wow. Crazy. Cool. Cool. Yeah. I know I really want to call out one that I know Greg's gonna pick, but yeah, <laughs> we'll save it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, that sounds like a super fun segment. Like like another reason why I think we started this Pick Your Poison thing of just doing something kind of different, you know, and that yeah. sounds really fun of an episode to to see what our picks are going to be, you know, and, and stuff like that. That'd be really cool. So good good job, Laura. I really like that one. Really cool. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. So that's right. our entire schedule for April. We'll be posting the schedule on Instagram, Twitter, and our website, of course, uh, when it's available. Uh, so I want to say lastly, before we go here, just please subscribe, rate, review our podcast, wherever you're listening listening to it on and check out the other great shows on the slash and cast podcast network at slash and cast.network. Uh, they have a new network site now. 
Um, so that's it from the gold room tonight. You know, thank you again to Grav Jane for coming on and, 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 you know, having the interview with him, super mind blowing, super fun. Um, this has been the conjecturing. I've been Rob and Laura and Greg. Yeah. Until next time, remember Horace objectives, so conjecture away. See ya. Bye. Brisket to get the biscuit.